Welcome to episode number 30. I am your host, Sebastian Engstrom, and today, Jacob Ross joins me. He is an elite level strength and conditioning coach. He is the co-founder of Smart Strength, where they coach regular athletes up to elite level athletes and power lifters. Hit him up if you want to check out customized programming. Why you should listen to this episode? Well, Jacob is a powerhouse of knowledge. He has coached some of the best athletes out there from the MLB to the NBA to the NFL. We go into his story and what is it really like to coach these top level athletes? What does it take to perform at such a high level? What are their habits? What are his habits? And this is just part one. We go into part two, deeper on training, deeper on nutrition. Enjoy this first part. And if this show is phenomenal in your eyes, even if you wanna help the show out, if you're on Apple, scroll down, hit five stars. That helps us reach more people. This is a contributing message to the community. So that is a massive favor. Please do this. If you're on another platform, let's say Spotify, Google, whatever it is, hit subscribe, like, and or even hit up a review. Takes you a few, I mean, 30 seconds in a minute at most. And this makes a massive difference. It's a good deed of the day, and I appreciate you for doing that. Thank you. And if you haven't checked it out, we have some phenomenal programs ourselves, calisthenics being the main one. And you can check out all the content on modernathlete.com. So we just switched the name to modernathlete.com. So modern with an E at the end. So modernathlete.com. And you can get the direct access to my coaching, the program that I am doing, and all the tips and tricks that go into it and phenomenal community as well. See you on the other side and enjoy the conversation with Jacob. Jacob Ross, it's amazing to have you here, brother. Well, thank you for being here. Oh, happy to be here. Just had to get up same time I normally get up. <laughs> <laughs> and what is that time? Um, it's it's gone back as I've gotten older. It's, I'm usually up 5 a.m., 5:30 a.m., something yeah. like that. And yeah, for those back who in don't, the day, it was. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, back in the day, it was 3:15 for a long time. Holy shit! Wow. <laughs> We'll get into that right now for listeners who are tuning in. Uh, it's 6 a.m. Central Time. And Jacob, you're in Illinois, right outside of Chicago, right? Yep, yep. Far west suburbs of Chicago. Okay. So, before jumping into 315, Jacob, how would you introduce yourself? Like, who are you? What the hell do you do? And, uh, yeah. It's 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 a uh, it's a complicated story, which makes for a good podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I I would say if I met somebody today that I didn't know, I would say my most of my job was uh, or has been an elite sports performance coach. I traditionally have worked with professional athletes, high level collegiate high school athletes um, on sports performance, um, and then I also recently have co-founded a business with Tom Callis called Smart Strength Official, and it's a customized online um, training platform. And um, that's that's the basics of me. <laughs> Everything else gets complicated. <laughs> In short, how would you describe the complicated? What do you do outside? Of, like who, like your father, your husband, right? Like what, yeah, what else? Yeah, is so I've been, sure, yeah. So I've been married, um, nine years to my wife alicia uh we have three kids we have two daughters and a son they are respectively six five and one but soon to be seven five and two 
Um, I'm from Texas originally, born and raised on a farm, you know, grew up on like 80 something acres. Um, there was only 4,000 people in my town, which I lived outside of, mm-hmm. um, and moved to Chicago around 11 years ago now, something like that. Um, and yeah, I, I play three instruments. I play at my local church in our church oh. band. Uh, what do you play? I play drums, piano, and bass guitar uh, oh. decently. Not nice. great, but yeah. decently. Good, good enough not to mess anything up. <laughs> nice. Okay, that's awesome. So where in Texas are you from? Yeah, it's a town called Pittsburgh. Uh, there's no H on the end of it. We don't do silent letters. Um, so a lot of people think it's like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but it's not. Um, and we are famous in Pittsburgh for several things, actually. It's an incredibly famous place that you've never heard of, huh. but it's very famous. We have world famous hot links. And if you mm-hmm. don't know what those are, you'll just have to look up Pittsburgh hot links. It's very difficult to explain. Um, we have pilgrim's chicken which at one point was the second largest poultry producer in the nation Hmm. it was started in pittsburgh texas and uh we also were the first in flight it was not the wright brothers um it was the ezekiel (laughs) airship in pittsburgh texas you can google that as well if you're really interested but we did it before the wright brothers okay oh um so the main reason these are our fascinating things i think they'll make this will make for a great story you are you know especially in tom's words this guy knows more than anyone else when it comes to high performance and training top level athletes like you've trained some some very cool people everything from olympians to nfl players nba players like top level d1 players it's it's uh it's across the board there's secret sauce into it so the secret sauce we'll get into maybe that's sprinkled in but let's let's start with the methodology how did this all get started we're talking about texas ranch farm days yeah right yeah so um my dad is probably the person who got me most in interested into strength and conditioning um mm-hmm. he bought a joe weeder set oh my gosh it would have been back in the 60s uh just a barbell set and uh, my whole life, he worked shift work in a power plant, 12 hour shifts, nights, days, didn't matter, you know, swing, whatever. But I always remember he would work out before or after um, he would go to work, always. Didn't matter how late it was, how early it was, how much he had worked. He would always stop by the gym either before he went to, on shift or after. And like, I remember you know, being like a nine or a 10 year old, sometimes my mom might have to go to the grocery store. She would drop my brother and I off at the gym and say, Hey, just stay in the corner. You know, your dad, (laughs) your dad's finishing up and then Uh he'll bring you home, you know? Um, and so I, I, you know, that heavily influenced me just to be interested in strength and conditioning because some people don't see it, you know, they just, unless they play a sport, they just never see it. That was, it was different for me. I saw it my whole life. Um, and then of course I played sports, you know, you're in Texas, you play football, Sure. Um, I was a, I was a good football player. I got recruited to some big schools, um, but I had seven concussions Holy my senior shit. year of high school football. So I decided. Um, wait, wait, wait. So, that so hold on. You said seventeen concussions. Is seven. just seven? Okay, seven in is one season. In one season. Yeah, dude. Yep. It was. Uh, I mean, back then, you know, concussions were like known. Um, they weren't what they are now. 
-hmm. it was kind of on the edge of they were figuring out it probably wasn't the best thing to do. Um, one of mine was really bad. I was out, I don't know how long on the field, probably a minute or so. And, you know, I had a headache for several weeks. Um, and, you know, you just keep playing like in Texas, like back then, you yeah. know, we didn't even have, we didn't even have a, uh, like a trainer, um, of any kind. So like, you know, the coaches would kind of run you to the sideline, do the smell and salt and ask you some really basic questions. Like, you know, what day is it? Well, in Texas, you only play on Friday night. That's it. So like, of course it's Friday. Like, you know, questions they want you to know the answer to uh, so that you can go play. I mean, it wasn't anything like, you know, I don't, they weren't like scheming to get me out there. It's just like, you know, as, as long as everything, you know, isn't broken then you just go out there and play. Um, but, you know, they just started stacking up for me. And I think a lot of it for me too was I started playing varsity as a freshman in high school. Mm, yeah. So I was 14 playing varsity football because I was just a bigger kid. And so I've gotten hit a lot. And, you know, also we did all these stupid drills where, you know, you just line up and basically smash each other in the head. Right. Um, right. Anyway. So, yeah. And I had, I mean, I had good numbers. I was strong back then. I was fast. Um, I was squatting like 500 pounds. I ran like a four, seven forty. Um, and then I graduated uh, first in my high school class as well. No. And so, Jeez. <laughs> I mean, it's only, it's only 110 people in my class, you know, but somebody's got to do it. Right. So um, usually you know, that's so, not the combo, but yeah, 500 pounds. Yeah, well, like that's unheard of for a high school student. Like what? I was, I was, <laughs> I mean, but the, the thing that was different about me from a lot of other, um, you know, I would say kids was, the I was links. getting up even. The high, well, I was, yeah, the <laughs> that's no, I mean, I was getting up at 6 a.m. in training um, before, before, as soon as I had, as soon as I turned 16, my parents bought me a Ford Bronco and um, I got up, I would drive to the gym, I would lift, I would go to school, go to practice. We would do a crappy, I thought the lifts in, at school were terrible. Um, and then at night I would go to community college to take even more classes because it could just kind of help me get ahead or whatever. So I just, I had a very like different understanding of the world as, as a high school athlete. I didn't drink. I never had a drink until I was 22 in my oh, life. Huh. Didn't party. Didn't, I just didn't care about any of that. Yeah. I, I would go to a bookstore, which people don't know what those are anymore, but, hmm. and I would buy like training books. I didn't care what it was wow. like Arnold's, you know, Arnold's encyclopedia, modern bodybuilding, uh, Joe Weider's books. Um, at the time, um men's um man muscle no not muscle fitness men's health sorry men's health was publishing books actually and there's actually some really good books back then that men's health was publishing by by strength conditioning coaches not bodybuilders mm -hmm. and i would just read all this stuff because again the internet was still in its early days at that point you could find stuff online but there wasn't anything close to what it is now yeah. you had to read and so i would read and just train myself and that's, I think, what helped me more than anything was just having a little bit more, you know, knowledge and, and probably motivation than most kids. Yeah. So I, it brings me back to my high school. Well, my first year in, in high school here in the United States, in Minnesota, my strength coach, small Italian guy uh, known for his, uh, what do you call it? The wedge? No, not. Yeah, something like that. He, he would... Um, we were terrible. Like I, I'm glad that I got my first shot at playing high school football there. It's called shout out to Mount Westonka. Uh, we lost every single game, <laughs> done that for many seasons in a row, but that made me able to play on a varsity team because they were not that good. Um, so 
they, he his methodology was to he gave me this old mag his magazine like you do one set as many reps or you should do a 10 rep max and uh that's all you do so yeah i mean we did circuit training and we did like and then he got me into this methodology like hey you need to do the squat little did i know because i'd never really I started working out when i was 15 but i didn't start doing any necessarily leg lifts there were compound lifts until i was maybe 19 20. my achilles tendons my entire like my flexibility was awful so mm. um long story short why i'm getting into that it's fascinating to hear someone else getting it i mean i was not even close to the dedication or did like read books and of that nature in that young of an age but it's interesting to hear your story like were there any people around you that did the same thing no, no. it was just me um i had a really really good friend who played football with me um but he was like he he would train with me but he wasn't into it like i was like he wasn't meet me at the gym at 6 30 he wasn't yeah. reading books um like in the summer absolutely lived with me like we studied together like great friend it's just yeah i was just a weird just a weird kid i mean you know back then too in high school you know, at the cafeteria, they had like the, they called it a snack line. So there's uh -huh. like the, the, there's like the meals that they gave you. And then there was like the snack line where if you had some cash, you could buy like chips, you know, soda sure. and whatever. And like, I remember, I think I was 17 and I stopped drinking soda. I was like, no, it's not good for me. Like, huh. I'm like, <laughs> what a weird little kid. Um, yeah, just strange. Um, but, you know, to bring me back to, to how I got to where I am now, I, I turned down all those scholarship offers. Um, I think I had kind of grown to hate football in a way. Um, I played basketball as well. It was actually my favorite sport to play. I wasn't mm. as good at basketball, but it was my favorite sport to play. Um, Would you say, and, one, one quick side note, did you eat as any other regular kid or did you already tune in your diet early on? I was working on it, you know, yeah. um, like I said, like, I remember when I stopped drinking, you know, we call it Coke in Texas, like, and then uh -huh. everything is a, everything is a Coke. Like uh -huh. you say, you go to a restaurant, I want a Coke. And they say, okay, what kind? I want a Dr. Pepper. All right, cool. Like, you know, that's just, this language up here is pop in the Midwest. But, um, uh -huh. yeah, like I stopped drinking it. Um, I stopped eating chips. Um, clearly like I couldn't go to the grocery store and just buy whatever I wanted, but also in like small town Texas, the food just inherently, if you're eating at home, which back then, you know, most people did. And, and we didn't have the restaurants anyway. You know, I think I remember when we got McDonald's, it was like a big deal. Like it was like mm -hmm. one of the three restaurants in the whole town. Uh, okay. So like, like, ho like home cooking down South is generally some sort of protein and, and vegetables. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, cream of corn and green beans. And, you know, um, we, we had about an acre and a half that we farmed for food on our land. So my grandparents would go out and dig up fresh vegetables and stuff. So, I mean, nice. you know, like just cutting out junk basically and, and eating kind of what was provided to me was not bad, not a bad yeah. start. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Continue, please. You were saying no, the scholarships uh, and so forth with that, that you, yeah. uh, you turned out. Yeah. I just, I just, you know, the, the colleges don't want you as much a, when you're, when you're hurt. Um, and then B a lot of like TCU was one of the schools that was looking at me they wanted, uh, they said, you know, you could sit out a year, like redshirt and then play, mm -hmm. which for sure I could have done. But um, because I finished first in Texas at the time, I don't know if it's still the case, you could go to any public school for free if you graduated first in your class in Texas high school. Wow. And 
TCU had already recruited me so hard. And even though they were private school, they didn't want to kind of be left out of this in general, not just because of me, because of any, you know, person valedictorian. So they would, they would kind of do a, a price match scholarship thing on the academic side. Now I didn't cover all the TCU because it's an expensive place to go. Um, which I didn't care anything about that. I, they had a really good exercise physiology program, which is what I cared about. And um, between that, I ended up uh, being an RA. So that helped pay for housing, um, sure. you know, whatever. And I decided to go to TCU. And I just got very lucky, very blessed at TCU to meet a guy named David Upton, who was uh, had just started teaching. He had his PhD. But uh, Dr. Upton did what I ended up doing, which was he trained professional athletes. He flew around the country. At one point in time, he was uh, voted the number one trainer in America by USA Today Mm -hmm. in like 1991 or something. He had the magazine thing on his wall. He trained like Jane Fonda Mm -hmm. when she was doing those workout tapes, Mike Singletary. Mm -hmm. Um, He also um, had uh, a time where he was helping Arthur, Arthur Jones design Nautilus equipment in florida hmm. yeah like just crazy background and he just kind of gotten older and said i want to stay put and i want to you know he had a phd i want to teach and yeah. exercise is you know in the states it's changed now but back then it was very very rare to find a college where you could study strength and conditioning back then exercise fizz was um you know it was if you had some sort of strength training emphasis it was olympic lifting or it was all like the standard cardiovascular intertwined medical you know stuff so like let's look at endurance cycling or running or you know rowing in an environment chamber how does uh, this affect diabetes and how does this affect you know uh muscle mass like you know like it's just it's just very endurance focused activity with a medical outcome that's where most of the research was Mm -hmm. and it's very strange to have a professor come in and teach you know uh gym design that was a class three like college credit on gym design like we had a whole book we went through code like how do you lay it out you know etc etc i went to the wrong university damn this is awesome (laughs) (laughs) no i mean it was amazing and it's i don't even think it's still there because he retired and i'm sure no one picked that up because you know you have to have the experience to teach it and that's something we can get into later but there's not a lot of academic uh professionals who have real enough world world experience to teach this as well that's part of the problem Hmm. um so anyway just lucky uh blessed to get to work with him and i met a guy at tcu who used to play football there Uh, he's a little bit older than me by a few years he also coached on the chicago bears he's my receiver coach Mm -hmm. his name was andrew hayes stoker and we just met playing basketball like in the summer he would come back down to tcu because you know he's from there go to the we had a really nice rec center that had just been built so you know everybody wanted to come use it and i wasn't going to do strength conditioning at all um i got to i graduated and i just said you know i don't want to go work at like a normal gym Mm -hmm. i did not i despise the internship route um (laughs) that most um you know uh, young adults were subject to at the time where you had to yes yeah no i mean like at tcu we had a really decently well-known strength conditioning coach and but the internship is like you go in there you sit down you shut up you work crazy hours Mm -hmm. and it's just like grunt work like there's nothing 
there's no, you're not a part of the process. It's like observe and learn. And um, I just thought they were doing it wrong, A. <laughs> and I just didn't see the point in going and learning more about why I thought they were doing it incorrectly. What, so, so what was it that you saw that this is off? It, it, it was that old school Texas mentality. It was, um, you know, basically powerlifting um, and then conditioning without purpose. You know, that's essentially what it was. It was a mix of that. You know, you would basically get as strong as you could in the summer. Uh, they would kind of culminate with this big, um, you know, one rep squat night right before the season. And let's, you know, everybody break records. And they were terrible squats, you know, people spotting and picking the bars up. And, you know, then the conditioning would say, you know, well, what numbers make sense? Well, let's do, you know, 200 push-ups, uh, 200 yards of sprints and two, like just this thematic, you know, kind of like a like a crossfit style i was just gonna say it sounds like crossfit <laughs> you, know, you just pick you just pick themes like there's yeah. no logic or anything behind it and, and i just think you know that's really dumb for uh, you know collegiate sports are uh, uh, just a small step away from professional you know yeah. especially for football like a very i mean some of those professionals are those uh you know collegiate teams are probably worth more than some professional teams in terms of the actual value that they bring yep. so i just thought it was really poor and um, I, I ended up going to grad school there because they offered me a scholarship and I said, well, you know, free school is probably not a bad thing. Cause I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, um, I started studying, uh, neuro neuroscience mm -hmm. and I was actually going to do a PhD in neuroscience. The professor who was in charge of the program at TCU, uh, him and I were close and he wanted to put exercise into some neuroscience research because there's so much, you know, even still, we don't know about how does exercise affect the brain. And um, that's what I was going to, that's what I was going to do. Now, during this time, I had decided that I would train anybody for free, anybody, mm. because if you're training for free, you can kind of skip the legal side of it because you can write it off as like academic. Like I don't need to have a certification. I don't need to have insurance. I'm, I'm just learning, right? Like it's mm -hmm. at a school um, and TCU was behind that because I was part of the program, you know, and you lower the barrier for people to like kind of work with you because you're not asking them for anything yep. and i'm like i'm in school anyway so it's literally just my time right like i'm yep. taken care of i have a place to live it's literally just my time so the word kind of got around that i would train anybody for free and i trained a ton of ton of athletes um you know athletes you just felt underserved you know if uh -huh. you, there's you know collegiate strength conditioning back then there was maybe three or four coaches and there's you know 90 or 100 athletes I mean, there's going to be a couple of guys who just don't feel taken care of. Right. Yeah, yeah. Same thing on the basketball team. We actually took over the women's um, strength and conditioning program. Our oh. department ran it. We ran a longitudinal <laughs> study on it because they were so unhappy with the strength and conditioning they were getting. They were just getting an intern thrown at them. Oh, wow. And they, there was no sort of professionalism to it or whatever. We said, well, shoot, we'll do like blood work and, you know, sleep studies and like all this cool stuff. And, and we actually helped help them reduce their non-contact ACLs tremendously or whatever. Nice. But um, the point is that I spent a lot of time training people for free and it wasn't just athletes. I trained regular, um, you know, peers of mine. I trained professors. Um, I trained some police officers who were on force there. And it wasn't like I was like in the gym, like these set hours. It was like, Hey, uh, I heard that you're a great guy to take. Yeah. I'll take you through a workout. Let's do two or three, four, maybe got to get you, you know, get you going. And some people I train on a regular basis. It just depended on the person, but, yeah. um, yeah. So I, I got to 
our grads program was really tough uh, for masters. It, you know, you're supposed to graduate in two years. Our average graduation rate was like 3.9 because the guy who ran it, um, uh, who, I, who I actually have a lot of respect for, but he just ran a really tough program. Your uh, thesis, our, like our average thesis link for people in our department was like, Oh, 140 something pages, something like that. Like by, you know, wow. like when you're in it, you don't understand it. But like when you start talking to other people, they're like, what the hell were you guys doing over there? Like, it's like doctoral level research, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so um, I had finished all my coursework. I was going into uh, the summer after my second year. I still had my lab work to do. So I had done uh, my actual study. I had about a year's worth of lab work to do to graduate. And I got this call because this guy, Andrew, who coached on the Bears, introduced me to this guy named Elias, who had a gym in Chicago. It's called EFT Sports Performance. And he called me and said, hey, I heard that you're a really good strength coach, that you're young, you want to work, you're just kind of sitting around chilling. I said, yeah. Um, he said, would you come up for the summer? Well, in, you know, co college world, right? Summer is like free for all. You can kind of do whatever you want as long as you're back by you know, September. So I was like, yeah, why not? So I literally flew up there. Uh, which was like the second flight of my life at the time, which is crazy mm. to think about. Um, never been to Chicago. Um, and I walked in the gym wearing cowboy boots. And the guy doesn't even say hi. He's just like, did you bring anything to work in? I'm like, you know, yes, sir, of course. Uh -huh. So I changed clothes, um, hop in hop in there. And the first person I trained was Lou Dang. The very first person. <laughs> he, he was, he was no. at the end of his workout. Oh, man. And um, he said, could you take him through some core and stretching? Regardless of how you feel about core and stretching, again, we could do podcasts on podcasts on any of this stuff. You know, but, you know, I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. So I took Lou through some stuff that he had just never done, some concepts he hadn't really been exposed to. And then I trained like seven Division I um, college football players. Like five of them were Notre Dame starters. Like we had a lot of Notre Dame guys at the time. And I took them to this, they had this, this pedestrian overpass ramp that had like a really nice incline on it. We call it the ramp. And that was like how they would start their conditioning on this day of the week. So I took them to the ramp. I had doing all sorts of stuff up the ramp. When they got back, they were just like done. They were just like, oh my gosh, like this is, this guy's nuts. He's lost his mind. And really, really quick, Lou Aldang, yeah. for those who don't know who that is, who would you, how would you describe Lou? Um, well, he's a two-time NBA All-Star. He should have been a three-time, but he mm. got traded uh, that last year. He was at, he was having the best statistical year of his career the year that he got traded to Cleveland. So I'm just saying, like, assuming he had stayed in Chicago right. based on the previous two years that he was having a better year, I don't know how he's not a three-time All-Star. But um, two-time All-Star, for sure um, – the best basketball player, if you're, um, you know, British at all, the best basketball player in British history, uh, hands down. He's actually on the five-pound uh, note in Brixton. When the Olympics mm. were in London, they did special notes that were actually are usable currency, and his face was on the five-pound note in Brixton. Oh, wow. To this day, as far as I know, the only athlete who's had their face on real money, like usable <laughs> money, not like fake, you know, like commemorative, yeah. like actual in circulation, legitimate money. The um, only basketball player to do that. Um, that's a big you know, deal to train actually, him the first. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you were saying more are, about him. Yeah, I say he also has a he also has an OBE, which a lot of people don't know uh, mm. for service to sport um, in the UK specifically. 
And so again, I'm just assuming, you know, you probably have some European listeners and if so, they'll, you know, and they're British, they'll be like, Oh wow, that's actually kind of random. Um, you said, OBE. You know, I'm not familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's order. The, the, the designation is order of the British empire. Okay. So every year the queen, um, gives out or, you know, the king, depending on, you know, it's been the queen for a long time, but sure. they give out, uh, there's different levels of designation that are basically like right under knighthood. So people get knighted and then there's like two or three tiers beneath that. And one of them mm-hmm. is an OBE. And basically they, it's special designation that stays with you for the rest of your life. Hmm. So if he's ever goes into like one of these like super fancy, whatever places, and he's like, oh, I'm an OBE. They're going to be like, oh, snaps. Like, okay, (laughs) like whatever you need, because there's still some, there's still some reverence, you know, I guess like in the U S it would be like, you know, meeting with the president and they give you a, like a specific medal, you know, like there's like the medal of freedom and the medal of this. Uh, Like I think Arnold Schwarzenegger one time got, uh, I I forget the award, but basically like for his service to physical fitness and, Hmm. you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a cool designation. You know, Lou Hmm. doesn't care about any of that stuff at all. That's just not him, but it is, it is a cool to recognize what he's given back to the sport of basketball, not just through his playing, but through his foundation work. But anyway, again, another stuff. Um, And I would also say like, he's probably, the modern, um, you know, godfather of basketball from Africa, I would say, you know, you have for sure, like Hakeem, obviously, um, you have Manu Bowl, you know, who South Sudanese like Luol is like, you have those greats, but like in terms of Luol's generation, he was the first person within that span of time um, to be that level of a player. Now it's completely different, right? You have so many players who are from Africa, you know, Joel Embiid and, um, Oh my gosh, Pascal Siakam, like you just keep going on and on and on, you know, players who are are from Africa, who are playing really at a high level in the NBA or, you know, the best players in the NBA in some cases. But again, Luol was in this kind of span where he was, uh, you know, a lot of African kids who are growing up and and maybe in their early teens or 20s now, like they know Luol. So like, Mm -hmm. and then in the US, he just wasn't a very talkative guy. So he didn't get the press, but like, you know, coming out of high school, LeBron was number one, Luol was number two. Hmm. Like a lot of people don't know that. Hmm. You know, Luol went to Duke, went to the Final Four his first year. Hmm. <laughs> you know, like um, the guy was an incredible, incredible player. And even the Bulls, he's top two, three, or four in every category. So it's like uh-huh. Jordan, Pippen, Lou in almost hmm. every single category, statistical uh-huh. category for the Chicago Bulls. So, huh. um, yeah, that's a little background, more background on Luol. I didn't even know that. But Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a ton of ton of stuff about him um but anyway i, I digress uh yeah you were I just, talking I about a lot of, yeah yeah i trained a lot of people that first day and um at the end of the day the guy was like i'd like to bring you up for the summer you know if it works out you know we'll talk about you staying long term and um the the athletes and stuff were like you know man this guy's really good like he's, he knows his stuff it's different than what we've been doing in a good way whatever so i moved up um for the summer i lived uh in a house <laughs> oh my gosh with some swingers this is a true story <laughs> um i rented a room from them it was me a truck driver and another guy who was trying to make an nfl and then they lived downstairs and yeah their like their wi-fi was called loverland like of course it was not password protected <sighs> like legit like they've been <laughs> Hey, you know, whatever cranks your tractor, but I'm just saying it's a strange thing for a kid from a small town in Texas to like move into, right? Um, There's some interesting so, parties there, I assume. 
Well, they, they, there were a lot of parties and they had them usually in the basement and, um, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, Strange, strange summer for sure. Okay. Um, so I'll tell you what, that ties us into the 315. All right. So at EFT, the first clients were at 5 a.m. And it was this group of guys um, and actually a couple of women who called themselves the RFG Club, which stood for the Rich Fat Guy Club. <laughs> and because our gym was private, it was not public at all. You had to have an appointment to walk in there. Nobody trained himself. You were always with a coach. And um, these RFGs, they wanted to train at our gym because we were training the best athletes in Chicago. Mm -hmm. You know, we were training a lot of the Bears players. We trained the wall, you know, best player on the Bulls at the time, et cetera, et cetera. So they associated that elitism within their business with like how they should be trained, even though they were not obviously like high level athletes. But they respected the process and and what we went through. And they like to see these guys come in and out, et cetera. But they started 5 a.m. I mean, some of these guys are, you know, on calls at at 630 in the morning. You know, they're getting ready for the stock market to open, whatever the case may be. And when I say like high net worth, like, you know, one of these one of the guys I trained had been on the cover of Forbes twice. Like that's that's some real money. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like, again, a small kid from Texas, like you think, you know, what money is. And then you start training professional athletes and you're like, okay, they have some money. And then I started training these RFGs and I'm like, wow, like you know, like two or $3 billion is very different than, you know, somebody who's making 15 million a year. Like it's a <laughs> different thing. Sure. Um, but because they would start training at five, um, I would have to wake up at three fifteen. I would drive to the gym, 20, 30 minute drive, get there at three forty-five, turn the lights on, turn the music on, open up all the doors. And then I had to train myself <laughs> because I would work from 5am till eight or nine at night something like that because the schedule was rfgs 5 to 10 a.m pros 10 a.m to 2 p.m you have like an hour break and then 3 p.m high school kids will start coming in and you train high school kids from three to eight three to nine you know depending on the time of year and that's just the way that you had to run your business um and when you're 20 you know 23 whatever i was 22 um and you want to see if this is really what you want to do i didn't move to chicago to party i didn't move to chicago because i knew somebody Mm -hmm. i moved to chicago to see if this is really what i want to do or not Mm -hmm. so in my mind i'm like what else do i have to do Mm -hmm. if i'm sitting at home i'm wasting time i Mm -hmm. might as well work and so uh, there were some nights where i would sleep at the gym because if you just worked from you know i got there at 3 45 it's 9 30 10 o'clock at night they got to be back at 3 45 what's the point Right. going back to the swinger house like <laughs> <laughs> you know like i would just sleep on the couch wake up and and you know take a shower and go right back to it so um that's what i did for that first summer and obviously i loved it and i said you know what what's the point of of finishing a master's degree for something i don't even want the degree for the point of going to school was to do this mm-hmm. so i'm doing it so right. i kept doing it um, and that takes me back to, you know, what we're talking about with the intern thing. If you go work for a collegiate team or a professional team, there's this whole ladder of internships and this and that other stuff there. Yes. I was like the new guy, but I was able to make an impact quickly because if you're in the private sector, if you're good at what you do, people notice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Athletes notice, uh, clients notice, customers notice, and that you start getting requests to work with more and more and more. Mm-hmm. So by like, maybe a year I had been there a little over, um, I was promoted general manager. So I ran the whole gym. I did all the programming and ever did everything for it. Now, like, 
you know, people, um, when I've told people this story before, they're like, man, that was like a big sacrifice. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. Um, to sacrifice means that you're giving up something you'd rather be doing. Mm-hmm. There was literally nothing I would have rather been doing. Hmm. So I can't call it a sacrifice. Like I yeah. can call it difficult for sure. Like it, I was tired, you know, I worked my butt off, but it wasn't like sacrificial. It's, it's, that's a different thing. Like you and I both have kids now, right? Sure. So like when we, when we go to work and, or we choose maybe to take on a project, there's some sacrifice there because you're like, mm, like, this is good for my family because I'm making money. It's a good business move, but I'm taking time away from something I'd rather be doing, right. like spending time with my family, you know, mm-hmm. my kids, like that sacrifice. Like at that mm-hmm. time, 22, 23, I mean, this was like a dream come true to me. You know, I was yeah. working with the best athletes in the world at the time. I mean, mm. you know, I trained eight NFL pro bowlers during my time there. I mean, how many people get to train eight people who make it to the pro bowl? One of them was Devin Hester, who was named to the top 100 all-time NFL team Mm -hmm, last mm -hmm. year. Top 100 all-time. I got to train that guy. Um, You know, as you kind of said at the beginning of the podcast, I got to work with a lot of high-level collegiate athletes. And at one point, I had somebody like in the track and field national championship, in the college football national championship, in the basketball final four, um, in the baseball world series, for like all within the same year. Because once mm-hmm. the gym kind of gets the name for being the place and the bears are really good at the time and we trained a lot of those guys, that's where every high school kid wants to go. So like, it, it's cool that I got to do it, but I don't want to sit here and say, oh, you know, my training magically transformed all these people. A big part of like your, your resume and training is doing a good enough job to get other elite athletes to want to come work with you too. Sure. So there's a difference between developing athletes and training athletes. Again, we could do another podcast on that. <laughs> <laughs> real quick before moving into the next um what was your experience like overall like training with these top level athletes what what stands out to you when you work with these athletes man i wish instagram was around back then uh mm-hmm. it was towards the end of my time there um because it would have blown people's minds what these athletes can do i mean tommy harris who was a two-time i think a two-time pro bowler defensive tackle played oklahoma he spent some time there. Um, he um, used to do barbell lunges with 405 on his back. Like down the third. Um, Bruce Gaston, who by all means, and I love Bruce to death, um, was not a great NFL player. He, he barely a blip in the radar. He played for a couple seasons, um, went to Purdue. But like Bruce used to come in the gym after a couple months off and just bench like, 560 pounds just like no problem just Uh, like you know Devin um Devin Hester is one of the most athletic people I've ever seen we did this drill where you would take a bed ball and squeeze it in between your feet and at the end of our gym we had like 25 yards of turf and then we had these circles that said EFT because that was the gym's name right and there was like this circle E circle F circle T so he would stand like 20 yards out from the wall with like a 10 pound med ball squeezed in between his feet and he would say, I'm going to jump, throw the med ball with my feet, and I'm going to put it in the middle of that E circle or the middle of that T circle or whatever circle he picked. Uh-huh. And he could do it time after time. After. So think about this. Can you jump and throw a 10-pound medicine ball 20 yards A? Like, could you actually do that? Period. Just could you do it right. with your feet only? And then second of all, could you do it precise enough to get it, you know, five feet off the, off the floor within a circle that's, I don't know, you know, three feet wide or something like that? Like, sure. it's this is just a football player. He's not, he's not a soccer player. Like this right. is insane. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, we had a guy named Brandon McGowan who used to flip our tire. It's like a 300, maybe 400 pound tire. He would flip it. And then while it was in the air, because he was bored, he would dive through it head first, do a flip on the ground, turn around and catch it before it hit the ground. Huh. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, like, I mean, I, I could go on and on and on. Like there's yeah. just stories about how, and then Matt Forte, who uh, was probably the most disciplined athlete I ever trained in terms of his work ethic. You know, he was a, a multiple time pro bowler. Um, you know, I think he should be considered for sure retirement for the bears. Um, maybe even, you know, borderline Hall of Famer in terms of he, he led the league from scrimmage for like eight seasons in a row or something like that, yards. Hmm. But anyway, like Matt, Matt used to come in the gym. We'd start lifting at like 6.15. He would have already went to the Bears practice facility and done all of his sprint work, all of it. Hmm. And then he would drive to me by 6.15, like sweating, like hmm. ready to lift. Uh, like, I mean, just you just see some really, really cool stuff. Some really cool stuff. And then Asia Evans, who I still train, she's getting ready for the bobsled um, Olympics right now. Mm-hmm. She um, she's medaled in her first Olympics. This will be her third. Um, she, you know, she used to lift with the NFL guys because she would do a she would do a seated box jump. I'm trying to remember her record. It's around 56 inches seated box jump, <laughs> and there was only a couple of NFL guys who could jump with her. Um, you know, she I would mean, go and wow. yeah. She would go, she would go box squat 405, you know? Um, and she's like 160 pounds. No. You know what I mean? Like, yes, it's, it's insane. Like, that's what people don't, people do not understand. And you said it when you said it about your story about Minnesota, right? Like when mm-hmm. you came over to play basketball and you saw this kid do this crazy dunk and you're like, wow, like he's not even probably going to like barely make me one until you work with these athletes on a consistent basis you don't understand the genetic differences between what's somebody that good and like somebody like, even like me, I would say like, I was a really good athlete. I wasn't that level of an athlete. Mm -hmm. Now, had I not got hurt, could I have maybe played in NFL or or even had a good career? I think I could have, but I'm not that level. So Mm -hmm. like we talked about my squat. Okay. I squatted 500 pounds in high school. Well, Tom Callis, who's also on this podcast, squatted 500 pounds in high school too. The difference is I was 220 pounds and Tom was like 140, right? Yep, like yep, yep. Tom, Tom <laughs> has always been squatting four times his body weight since he was in high school. Four yes. times. Yes. No, he didn't. You know, at 14, 15, 16, he, it doesn't matter if you have the best training coach in the world. To squat four times your body weight is inherent. God yes. given. Right. And people, they just have a hard time getting that through their mind that there's a humongous discrepancy between where somebody starts genetically. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not hard work. That doesn't mean that it's not a lot of discipline involved. I've seen so many guys who are so, so gifted genetically and they didn't put in the work and they didn't make it anywhere, like mm. literally mm. nowhere. Mm. It's, it's, it's a combination of the two where you get the really like long-term, like high-level success. Even Luol, I would say, was not the most gifted athlete. I mean, he was strong. He wasn't crazy strong. He was fast. He wasn't crazy fast. You know, he could jump. He's six nine, but he wasn't like you know putting his arm through the rim. Mm-hmm. But the guy was so consistent. I mean, we trained together. You know, while he was playing for ten years of mm-hmm. his career together, mm-hmm. I don't think we ever went longer than maybe two weeks without training in ten mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Maybe two weeks. Like the guy was a machine. 
Every mm-hmm. time, if, it, if we had to train, it didn't matter if they flew. Because, you know, at NBA, you fly at night. You don't fly during the day. People mm-hmm. don't understand that either. You finish a game at 1030. You, you shower. You do your press conference. You eat. They, are, they have food catered back there. And then you take your, uh, you know, private bus to the private FBO. You get on your plane and fly. Because they want, the NBA wants you there just in case, you know, there's a travel delay or whatever. So a lot of times, like, these guys are landing at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, if Lou's got practice at 10 and he's going to eat breakfast and he's going to get to the arena for practice, that means we're training at 7.30 or 8. Mm-hmm. He was up, ready to go. Tra- you know what I mean? Like, for, sure. he- for decades. Like, <laughs> that's mm. the kind of dedication that it takes to be a consistent high-level athlete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that is unique is being i mean it's called smart strength for a reason your business it's easy just to put on weight and have athletes just do the old school way hey just go nuts and squat as much as you can run as much as you can like for example central oklahoma i mean it was a d2 school where i went but the basketball coach pulled all of his players he was like no i want my my players fresh. I don't want them squatting. I don't want them doing anything because I want them to be just agile and fresh on the court every single day. Like what, what's your response to that? What's smart training to you? Yeah. Well, I would say um, something I've been a fan of for a very long time in terms of training, thinking about training is um, the right way to train somebody is a hundred percent dependent on the outcome that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, I, I really have a hard time with people who say something is right or wrong in training. Um, I think there's optimal or less optimal is a better way to put it. I think mm-hmm. right and wrong is a very low level way of thinking about it because to say something is wrong basically means like it should never be used. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that's the case in training. I think there's a lot of nuance and a lot of room for it, depending on so many factors, so many factors, you know, what's the training age of the person, how many minutes they playing, what sport they playing, you know, what's their foundation, the off season, um, you know, so, so to answer your question, I would say what you can do in season is completely dependent on what you got done in the off season. Right. So if you were squatting, you know, once or twice a week in the off season with some decent volume and decent weight, it's not a big deal for you to squat in season because your body's used to it. It's acclimated towards it. It doesn't care. Mm-hmm. You know, again, just to use example, Matt Forte, you know, we would, we would always lift on Monday or Tuesday because, you know, you play on Sunday. And he would squat, you know, 500 pounds, five sets of five, like in season, because in the off season, we were doing 600 pounds for five. Like to him, it's like, oh, this is a break. Like, it's no problem. Wow. So it's all, it's always depending on what you're used to. Would would he actually do 600 times five? Yeah. Oh yeah. To a box. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like. Yeah, I mean, if, if NFL players ever decide to power lift, it would be over for powerlifting. Okay. Oh, uh, you okay. get you get a few you get a few of these people like Tom who who are going to be a five time world record holder regardless. It doesn't matter if an NFL player comes in or not. But for the bigger weights, um, you know, again, Dan Bell is a friend of mine. Like Dan Bell's the all time world record holder in powerlifting right now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he squatted eleven oh eight or eleven sixteen. I forget what eleven hundred something. Mm-hmm. But you know, like I said, when you would see a guy come in like Bruce and bench 560, just two months layoff, you know what I mean? Yeah, like smooth. Yeah. Hmm. Holy crap. If that guy actually trained for it, you know, like what could he bench? Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I digress again. But um, so like what what you could do in season depending on what you get done off season. So like in season for you as a collegiate athlete, what your coach is saying, 
what I hear him saying is I don't want my players so fatigued from their training, their lifting, that they can't perform on the court. That's right. how I interpret that. Right. Exactly. Now, in his mind, he's associating squatting with that problem of fatigue mm-hmm. on the court, yep. which I would say is really dumb because your muscles don't know what a squat is. They have no mm-hmm. clue. They know what load is. They know what fatigue is. They don't know what a squat is. So mm-hmm. whether it was a, you know, if I took you in there with one twenty-five pound dumbbell, I could make you tired enough where you can't even take a step, mm-hmm. right? So like, it's you can't blame it on squats. I get it because mm-hmm. you don't, you you know what you know, right? And you don't know what you don't know. So I get it. But the point is, is basically he should have been communicating to his strength conditioning coach. I want you to put my players in the best position possible to perform, whatever that is. That's your job. Figure it out. That would be the right way to say it. Hmm. What like are... Lou and I, we trained, well, I'll just say this, like Lou and I trained three, 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 four times a week in season. We trained mm-hmm. after games. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was one year, his all-star year where he led the league in minutes. So he played more minutes than anybody else. Hmm. He also, at the time, I don't know if it's still true. He ran the most distance ever in a league. This is when mm-hmm. they were starting to track the distance, you know, using technology, right? And how many miles he ran was still, it was the most ever in the history of the NBA since they've been recording it, uh-huh. how many miles someone had ran. And he was an all-star. Mm-hmm. And I think he, that year he was second all-defensive team or something. So you're mm-hmm. talking about a guy who, like, it's like, wait a second. He played more minutes than anybody. And this is Kobe in his prime. This is LeBron in his prime. This is Dwayne Wade in his prime. This is Carmelo in his prime. This is every person you can think of in their prime. He played more minutes than them, A. Yep. He scored enough to make it all-star. Sure. He played defense well enough to make a defensive team. Yeah. Like, And we would lift after games. Hmm. people like this is like blowing their mind like how can you do that because we had an amazing off season every off season and the way that i thought about it was if you lift after a game now i get two nights of sleep hmm. right mm-hmm. if i lift the next day i only get one night of sleep to recover mm-hmm. and everybody knows that you recover the most when you sleep so you know i'm not talking about we were going to the gym doing crazy workouts but if you if you're already played an entire game and you're you're warmed up you're ready to go you're not sleepy like after an NBA game, holy smokes, your adrenaline is through the roof. So like, hey, let's go take 30, 40 minutes, do a lifting session and just be done with it. So you don't have to think about it. You can just sleep and recover. So anyway, you know, you can train in season purely based on what you've got done in the off season, I would say, 100%. What would a workout with such an intense schedule look like for Lou? It was pretty simple. Um, it was a lot of single leg work, unilateral work, um, a lot of tempo work. You know, I'm trying to get intensity instead of volume at that point. He had enough volume on the court. Um, and it was always full body. We didn't break stuff down into upper, lower, mm-hmm. any of that kind of stuff. Because, again, let's stimulate the fiber we need to stimulate and, let, like, let's get you rested. Um, and it was always, you know, stuff that, that was trying to address whatever his issues were. So if he had some knee tendonitis, which he had a lot of when we first started working together, and as he got further in his career, he got to the point where it just really wasn't a problem at all. But we might do a Bulgarian split squat, you know, a rear foot elevated split squat, depending on your terminology, where, you know, yes, you're strengthening the glute on the leg that's forward um, and the leg musculature in general, but the leg that's backwards, you're actually getting mobility work, right? Because you're getting a stretch on that back leg as you go down every time. Hmm. So it's like, okay, how can we find exercises like that that are kind of combining two things at the same time? Because again, I can't stack volume on volume and volume on volume on this guy. He just played an NBA game. So how can I get the most bang for your buck? What are exercises that do more than one thing? Mm -hmm. You know, again, another example, we would never do like a crunch. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not saying you can't do crunches. I'm just saying at that place and time. And again, back to what I said, 
the right thing depends on the outcome that I'm looking for. I'm looking for an effective workout in a brief period of time for this guy. So I need to pick something that's going to be like, uh, you know, maybe a half Turkish get up, you know, maybe a dumbbell windmill, something where we're getting core work, we're getting stability work in, but we're also getting some other musculature involved, maybe with some mobility work as well. So that we can, again, just maximize that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is jumping back on this, the topic of your story. So you've been training these top level athletes, but eventually something shifted. Like now there's smart strength. What, where is the gap there and how did I, that all come about? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that too. Um, so, you know, I was at EFT, I forget how many years I was there, um, but you get to a point, even in the private world where you're working all these hours and you don't own the business. Right. Like I just, I don't, I don't own it. So I can't pay myself more money, even though the business is doing well. You know, while I was there, um, we started our first, my first year there, we were doing like 400,000 in revenue. When I left, we were doing 1.8 million. And I would never, ever sit here and say, oh, that was all me. Mm -hmm. I, I ran the gym during that time. And I think I hired the right staff, but it was for sure a team. But the point is, is like, you know, if you're running the business and, and you're responsible for, for helping that, that success come along and, and help, you know, kind of architect it, you know, you, you get to a point where you're like, why am I doing this for this amount of money? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you have that conversation and look, it's, it's not a right or a wrong with, with, uh, you know, Elias guy on the gym. It's, you know, he thought his value was X. He, th- he thought my value was Y and I thought it was the other way around. Mm. And, um, there was also like, it, it, this was a tough time for sure, because I was flying to train Lou. He's been traded and he signed with Miami and Lou all was paying our gym um, for me to come down and train him. Not me directly, like our gym. That's just the way that we did our business model. And um, there was a local high school, uh, private high school that wanted us to take over their strength condition, like our gym in general. But the the boosters, you know, which are the parents, they knew that I was like the guy. Mm-hmm. So they wanted me to do it. Well, mm-hmm. I can't do it if I'm in Miami, right? Like, doesn't make sense. Well, like he kind of said, you know, I would do it, even though I had, they hadn't talked to me about it at all. Mm-hmm. It, and it just kind of got to a place where I'm like, why am I letting someone else like dictate everything about my life? Sure. Like how much money I make, what hours I work, where I work, et cetera. It doesn't make sense anymore. Um, Cause he basically told me like, you can't keep training Lou. And that just, that was just really, really hard for me because Lou and I were so close um, and I felt like Lou had helped build that business so much. I mean, he had done such a good job, you know, as a pro player, he had really brought a lot of recognition to that business, a lot of legitimacy to that business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just didn't think that was the right thing to do. And it's not like he was paying our business, like, you know, not paying us well, like he was compensating our business well for it again, not me, our business. Right. Yeah. So it's not yeah. like there was a money issue either. I just didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. Um, and I'm a loyal guy and I'd like to say that I, I try to do things, you know, the right way. Um, and I just didn't feel like that was right, um, Mm. at all. And that was probably like the biggest thing that was like, okay, I got to get out of this. Um, and so I did, um, you know, Luol ended up signing with the Lakers that summer and he called me and said, Hey, like you guys basically fired me as a client. Like, I don't mind asking you to come work with me. I said, yeah, I don't mind it either. So he's like, I don't even care what you do. Like you can stay in Chicago, you can move to Texas, you can, you know, whatever floats your boat, uh, you can go for it, but, um, just train me. I'm Mm -hmm. like, all right, cool. So I started flying to LA 
when he had home games, I was there. Obviously, in the offseason, we worked together. Um, I started working out at Barbell Brigade, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with them at all, mm-hmm. but they're a you know, decent-sized brand, small gym in L.A., but decent-sized brand. Mm-hmm. Um, I started working out there. I got to know Barton Geo really well, and it just kind of – my life just kind of shifted drastically from this, like, up at 315, you know, um, work – six, seven hours before you eat, you know, slug a protein shake, stuff Chipotle down your face, go work another six, seven hours to a guy who like flew. And I was sitting in a box at the Lakers game and like, just a very like different (laughs) lifestyle. It was crazy. And, you know, people look at that too. And they say, Oh, that was so cool. Like one time I had Ed Cohn um, and Brian Shaw in the walls box, the Lakers game together. (laughs) Um, you know, and, and they were like, that's so cool. I'm like, yeah, it, it is cool. But that was where it was starting to get sacrificial for me. Because mm. by being in L.A. for two weeks at a time, I'm oh, not with long. my family for two weeks at a time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because if he had a home stretch, I was there. Yeah. I just I just wouldn't travel with him on the road because it didn't make sense. Sure. They're flying private. Right. I can't, I can't, like, I physically yeah. can't keep up unless you're flying private. Like, you, sure. the, the math just doesn't work out. So, um, and my thing was that's a time for me to go home. Like it worked out great. Like I, we mm-hmm. could do all of our training in person. And then when he's on the road, the way those trips work, you're, you're not training as much um, in terms of overall sessions because they have to give you time off before you go. And they have to give you time off when you get back to some extent. So like I could basically like we would train right before he left and right when he got back. So mm-hmm. it basically would decrease that window. Like while he was quote unquote gone that we actually needed to train. But anyway, um, you know, that was, that was tough. Like, so people are like, yeah, it's cool that you got to go do that. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not with my family. Like I love Lou. Oh my gosh. I love him. Like he is, he is a brother to me, but that's not your kids. You know what I mean? Sure. Like that's not your wife. Right. You know, I'm going to these games and you know, I, I live five minutes from the beach and like all this stuff. It's like, it's cool, but it's not, it's not your family. And the thing that you can never, ever, ever replace is your family. Right. And um, it doesn't matter what you do and, and where you go and how much money you make and all that stuff. Um, but what what pushed through it for me was I knew that there was an expiration date on it. Hmm. Like I knew Lou was going to retire at some point. Hmm. You hmm. know, like the guy, yeah, he can't play forever. He played for 16 years, you know, but like he can't play forever. There's going to yeah. be a retire. There's going to be a date on that. And that's the only reason that I signed up to even do that. Hmm. If, 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 Luol was would have been 21 and he had, you know, a couple of years in the league and we had met, even if we were still great friends, I don't think I could have signed up for that mm-hmm. because the life over time just gets really, really, um, really, really, I mean, lonely probably is the best way sure. to put it. Yeah. You know, like even Luol and him and I being close, I mean, the guy's playing. It's not like we're hanging out all day. Right. You know, like he's a professional athlete. You're at the, he's at the arena. He's doing this and doing that. Like there's just a lot of alone time. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't regret it. It's just, it's not as easy and glamorous. I think as people think for sure. Yeah. And then eventually you worked with him until he retired and smart strength. How did, how did that? Yeah. How did that transition happen? Yeah. So, um, Lou retired, uh, we, he was in LA and there's a whole nother podcast we could do about LA and, and what happened what happened in basketball wise there, but um, he ended up going to Minnesota for a year. And so I lived in Minneapolis for a year uh, mm-hmm. with Lou. 
Nice. And uh, that, that was my Minnesota experience, which I enjoyed okay. quite a bit, actually. Uh, I would drive because from where I live in Chicago, it's like a four hour drive. Sure. And so people are like, oh, why don't you just fly? I'm like, well, it's what, 40 minutes to the airport. You got to get there an hour early, mm-hmm. an hour flight. Like you start adding it up at the same time. If you oh. drive, you can just leave whenever you want. So um, I would drive and um, then he retired. And Lou, Lou knew he always wanted to continue to work with me in some capacity. We just weren't sure how or what mm-hmm. we were going to do. Um, and then COVID hit. Mm. So he retired. His retirement party with the Bulls was October or November of 2019. Mm-hmm. I don't remember which one. Well, so let me take a step back. And then in January, I went to the LA Fit Expo. Barbara Brigade had me out. And I um our son was born in January 3rd. I went out there like January 17th or something like that. Um, and I almost died. I had a pericardial effusion, which if you don't know what that is, I'll save you the Google. Basically your heart gets inflamed. You have fluid that builds up in between your heart and the pericardium, which is a sheath of tissue that surrounds your heart that keeps it from rubbing up against your lungs at the beats. That tissue is designed to hold you know, millimeters of space, millimeters mm-hmm. of fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, if it gets swollen and fluid builds up, that tissue is really thick. It's not designed to expand that much. Um, so the more fluid that builds up in there, you get two things that happen to you. One is your heart is literally being choked from the fluid, like it mm-hmm. can't properly beat. So that's a problem. Um, and the other problem is your chest cavity doesn't have a lot of room. And as I said, the purpose of the tissue is to keep it from rubbing up against the lungs. So as it starts to expand, now my lungs can't move. Mm. And so both of my lungs were collapsed. Um, neither one was inflated. And they pulled um, a liter and a half of fluid off my heart. So, From you know, heart. Whoa. But for the Americans who don't know liters that right. well, um, think about a smart water bottle. One and a half of those was pulled off my heart the first time. That's not all of it. That's just the first time. That's and the other thing about that particular condition is you don't really know what happened. It's not like a heart attack where it like hits you. It's like a slow process, right? The fluid has to build up slowly and then it starts pushing on everything. And you just, like, I felt uncomfortable. I had some shoulder pain. I couldn't quite breathe right, but it wasn't like overnight. It was slowly, slowly. And like, we had just had our third child. So I'm thinking, you know, like the nights are different. You're not sleeping a lot. Like I'm just tired. Like I felt like in hindsight, it makes sense. But, and then I flew out there for this expo. And Barbell wanted me there and I loved them so much. I wanted to do a good job for them. I felt terrible. Like every night they were like, do you want to go to dinner? And mm-hmm. I'm like, I just need to sleep. Like I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't understand what's going on with me. And I filmed this YouTube video with Bart, the owner, uh, co-owner of Barbell. And as I was filming the video, I couldn't even bend over to pick up a weight. Like I physically mm-hmm. couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine at the gym stand, I was like, Hey, this sounds really strange, but like, would you mind picking up that weight for me? I like I physically can't do it. And the other crazy thing is on that same trip, um, I walked out and pause squatted 647 in wraps. What? The same, the very same trip, which is so wow. dumb, like in hindsight. Like it's so dumb. Like I felt terrible, but I just I felt like, hey, they flew me all the way out here, like I need to do something. You know, like uh-huh. that's just that's just a dumb athlete mentality. But anyway, um, so I filmed that YouTube video and then Bart was like, dude, I think you need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, I thought it was nerve pain because of the intense amount of pain in my shoulder. I thought I pinched a nerve, you know, mm. like 
lifting heavy, something like that. Well, um, so we were going to go see this like really good chiropractor who like works on all these people in LA. And on the way there, I couldn't drive. I was starting to be able not to breathe. Mm. I really couldn't speak. And every bump we would hit, and we were riding a Tesla, like super nice car, like every mm-hmm. bump we would hit, it felt like somebody was like just stabbing me like in the shoulder, every little bump. Mm. And I'm like, I think we need to go to the hospital. He's like, I agree. So Bart took me to the hospital. And I think there's something in your mind, like once you decide that you're, you're messed up, your like it, your mind, like lets you feel it actually. Have yeah. you ever experienced that? Sure. Yeah. You know, like you get hurt. Oh, uh, here's a better analogy. You, you're on a road trip. You have to go to the bathroom. And you're like, you put it off, put it off, put it off. And then you see like, there's a perfect gas station. You know, they have the Taco Bell inside there. Yeah. You're like, yes, I can get Taco Bell. I can get gas. I can, I can go to the bathroom. It's like, once you decide that that's the place you're going to stop, like the urge goes like through the roof. It's like yeah, your mind yeah, knows. Yeah. Like, it's, like, like that's how it is with, with something like this. So like once I decided I need to go to the hospital, like I felt everything. So like when I got there, they had to get a wheelchair for me. I could walk. They pushed me, like, you know, pushing me every bump. Like, I it, seriously, it felt like I was, I mean, I was, I was dying. Mm. And you were so dumb. We get in the hospital and they're like, you know, um, you know, I'm like, oh, it's, it's a nerve thing. <clears throat> yeah, I can't breathe. I'm like, it's a nerve thing. But like, chill out, buddy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they, they go into a CAT scan and they're like, uh, we got to do surgery right now. You're about mm. to die. Yeah. And so the surgery, thank goodness, wasn't like crazy. They didn't have to like cut open my chest or anything. They just run a catheter. They were going to go through my abs, but I had too much muscle. (laughs) They couldn't (laughs) go through my abs. Uh, So they had to go through my ribs and I was awake for it all. Um, Yeah, it was was strange. It was it was strange uh, because they had a monitor next to my bed. And again, I couldn't breathe hardly. Like literally I was like, and I'm watching it. And the doctor goes in through my ribs and he's watching it as the other doctors holding the ultrasound or whatever it was so that they could see. And I see that I see it go to like the edge of my heart and this needle stops like, like so close from my heart. It's crazy. Jeez. Like crazy. The uh, precision. Uh-huh. And then he takes like a big, like turkey baster, you know, like a big syringe and he hooks it to this catheter he had just done. And he slow, like really slowly starts pulling. And you see this like, like reddish whitish fluid like just shoot through that too like like as soon as he hit the spot and started to get a little backwards pressure like and he just pulled it out poured it in the bag pulled it out poured it and it kept going and every time he would fill up a syringe i could breathe better and better and better and better yeah and well yeah when we got done with it it's on my instagram if you scroll way back he pulled a liter and a half of fluid off of me um and the doctor said I've never seen somebody survive that much fluid. Never. Oh. My entire year. And he was an older guy. He's like, I've never seen it. He said, um, you were probably a day away from dying, I would oh. guess. He's like, I even was as strong as you are and all that. He's like, that's the only reason you survived is because of your strength. Like the mm-hmm. shape that you're in, how strong you are, your lungs, your heart, like that's the only reason you survived. He said, but even with that, another day, I don't think you would have made it. So, and then keep in mind, my wife is back home with huh. our son who's what two weeks old three uh-huh. weeks old yeah our other two kids she can't come see me because yeah. what are you gonna do with the baby babies can't go into the you know i was in the icu babies can't go in the icu right. you know it was just crazy it was crazy and they they said i'd be in the hospital for two weeks i was out in two days hmm. and again i just attribute it to just being in shape i've lifted for 20 21 years in a row now mm-hmm. and 
just being in shape, your body recovers so much faster. And um, I stayed at my friend Barton Gio's house for a few days. They didn't want me to fly right away. They wanted to make sure I was okay. And then I flew back home. So that would have been like early February. And then we got shut down, what, a month later for COVID? <laughs> right? Uh, like, it's, 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 you can't make this stuff up. So, you know, I almost died. COVID hits. Do you, and know, the, do you I, know the reason behind it? Like why no, they, they inflamed were, heart? They ran every test under the sun uh, that they had available to them. They tested me for some like random fungus that appears in the Midwest. They're like, maybe it was that. Like nothing came back. And uh, the only thing they can say is that um, sometimes it happens to people, perfectly healthy people. They said it's, it's rare, but it does happen. It wasn't like, it's not like, you know, they've never seen it before. And they said sometimes even like a cold, if the right virus particle gets stuck in that particular area and, you know, your immune system attacks it, like that little bit of inflammation, because there's not a lot of space, can cause more inflammation and it just mm -hmm. kind of grows. And they said, you know, if you maybe had been sleeping, you know, like, again, we just had a new baby, like maybe your body would have fought and it would have been done. But for some reason, you had accumulated to that point. So they never knew. Um, yeah, they never knew. And how has it been since that surgery? I didn't, I didn't lift. It's the longest break I've taken since I was 14. I didn't lift for six weeks. Um, I think I probably could have it four weeks, to be honest. But I'm like, you know, when you almost die, you just want to listen to your doctors, even if uh. they don't quite know everything about lifting, and that's fine. Um, I just wasn't in a hurry. And actually, that brings us to smart strength. So when I was in the hospital, Tom had competed at uh, the hybrid powerlifting meet in Florida while I was in the hospital. Mm. And he, I don't know what he tore in his knee, and he tore his pec in the same knee. He was, squ he was squatting eight, I don't know, 816 or something like that, tore something in his knee. He's like, screw it, I'm going to finish a meet. Went to bench, you know, 407, whatever the kilogram is, tore his pec. Mm. He still deadlifted 650 which is Jeez. crazy. <laughs> and um, so by the time I get back to Illinois, you know, he's back and he's limping around. He can't do anything. And I said, you know, Tom, I'm not a physical therapist, but I've trained enough NFL players that they're always hurt, beat up something like, you know, I, if you're not going to go get treated, which he wasn't going to, because the, the treatment options are this, you go and get x-rayed, nothing's broken. Okay. You go get an MRI, something's torn. If it's attached, right, like not fully detached muscles, then they're not going to do anything. Mm. They're going to send you on your way, right? If, you're, if your hamstring is attached, clearly they're going to go in and reattach it. But from what I could tell and what he could tell, everything was attached. Like even his pec, which was really bad tear, it wasn't completely detached. So what are you going to do? The, the, the doctor is just going to send you to physical therapy. I'm like, if that's the ultimate outcome anyway... Let me take you through some stuff. And we had trained together some at that point, but we hadn't, like, he was still kind of doing his own thing. And I took him through a lot of the rehab stuff that I used to do with my, my NFL players. And he started getting better. And then we started talking about training and theory and, and why why did you end up in this situation, right? Like, some powerlifters say, like, oh, it's just the nature of the sport. And, and for sure, when you're lifting that heavy of weight, stuff happens. But I think there's a lot you can do to avoid if it's different from, like, normal powerlifting you know, mentality. Um, and we just started talking about it and he started getting better. And the things that we're talking about made sense to him. And he was sharing his powerlifting experience with me and like things that he thought and like, that made sense to me. And then COVID hit, everybody's stuck at home. 
you know, Tom had a garage gym, which was what we trained out of. And then I started building one and we said, you know what? We always get asked to be trained for people to train us. I'm just sitting at home anyway. Let's, let's, let's do it the right way. Um, we did not want to do spreadsheets. I thought that was a really crappy way to train people online. Um, so we found this app where you could kind of like, they do all the hosting, right? They do the platform. They do all the stuff that I don't know how to do. And, but you can still put your label on it. You can upload your own videos. Like it, it, as far as your client is concerned, outside of the actual app name, everything else is you. And I'm like, that's perfect solution for us. We just pay them a fee, whatever. And that's when we started SmartStream because Tom was like, he was tired of, you know, basically like literally like not being able to walk out of meets, right? And I was tired of um, people providing online training without like great ways of doing it and great tools of doing it. And we just kind of said, well, if that's the case, then we need to be the solution, right? We just don't need to sit and complain about it. We need to be the solution. So mm. we started SmartStream. Um, and I think it was, it would have been April of 2020. So right after, but all these things had to happen yeah. for us to get to that point where it made sense. If COVID mm -hmm. hadn't happened, I don't think either one of us would have took a step back and said, had the time to like, to figure it out. Right. If Tom wouldn't have ripped his knee and his peck off, I don't think he would have been as like willing to like, Hey, let's, let's figure this out together. You know, if I wouldn't have had my heart stuff, I wouldn't have stopped traveling probably even during COVID to be honest, but I, I couldn't travel because of my heart stuff for like, three months with the doctor said, and then on top of the pandemic. So all these things kind of wrap together for us to start smart strength and, you know, it's doing well. We want to keep growing it for sure, but we've really been able to help people um, in a lot of different ways, not just in powerlifting. We've been able to help people who had back pain for, you know, eight or nine years and they never got out of it. And now they're pain free. You know, I had one guy who couldn't lift his arm past his ear in terms of his shoulder mobility. He's like in his fifties. And now he's doing full dumbbell overhead press, like everything, right? Like squatting with a bar behind his back, which I don't care if he does that or not, but he wanted to do it. So, okay, let's train for it then. Um, so it's, it's fulfilling a lot of things for us and that we're actually able to really legitimately help people. And that was a big deal for us. We didn't want to just, you know, take somebody's money and like send them on their way, so to speak. Like we really wanted to legitimately make a difference in people's lives. And we've been able to do that so far. Nice. And you're part of the company is strictly, is it coaching online? Is it coaching in person? Maybe a, a combination? It's all online um, yeah. because, because of, you know, starting during COVID, it wasn't a choice. So mm -hmm. our, our clients are used to that. Um, and for Tom and I, like, you know, he has a full-time job outside of that, right? Sure. So he can't be in person. I have no desire to go back to being in person. I did that for a long time. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't desire that life again. Um, and that brings me to, you know, a good segue into what else I do. So I can, I still work for Luol. Um, this year I was, uh, able to be the strength conditioning coach for the South Sudanese men's basketball team. Uh, they competed in a tournament called Afro basket, which is like the biggest tournament for, um, national basketball in Africa. And it's like a precursor to the world cup and the Olympic qualifying. And, you know, Luol is South Sudanese. Uh, South Sudan is the youngest country in the world. Um, they split from Sudan. A lot of people get to, they, they think they're the same country. They're not anymore. They were for a long time. Hmm. Um, they split around 11 years ago. And Luol is South Sudanese. And um, there's, I'm trying to remember my numbers, but there's something around 27 million South Sudanese 
around the world who were displaced because of the fighting in, in South Sudan. Hmm. And Luol's part of his mission as a human being is to how can he help rebuild his country after mm -hmm. all those years of fighting, um, all that long running war, how can he help rebuild it? So he knows basketball. He's seen what basketball can do. Basketball sport in general can develop nations. It can develop communities. Um, there's real research on just tensions in countries going down during the Olympics like ethnic tensions, religious tensions, racial tensions, they all go down sure. during the Olympics because there's something about seeing diverse groups of people come together and compete for a common cause. Yep. So Luol has seen what basketball has done in his life. It's what it's been able to do for him and his family. And he wants to give that back to that. And so with his foundation, he's been doing a lot of that in camps in the U.S. He does a camp in the U.K. All this stuff is free. Um, but he wanted to start the national team because South Sudan, the average height of the Dinka tribe uh, for a male is 6'6". Six, six. That's the yeah. average height. No. Right? Holy. Oh. Yeah. And that there's a lot of tribes in South Sudan for sure. But um, in terms of the physical traits, even tribe to tribe, there's some tribes that are very similar. So like there's just a lot of tall guys hmm. and, and, and women in South Sudan. Hmm. And he's like, you know, we can harness that. We can We can really like make a difference here. So he funded the national team. That's very rare, like, right? Like your government's supposed to fund it. Well, the government's so new in South Sudan, they don't have all their stuff together yet. It's hard for them to do it. So Luol's like, fine, I'll fund it. I don't care. Uh -huh. And um, we competed in Afro Basket. And the team, you know, basically the team was started a year ago and we finished fifth in the whole country. Nice. You know, I mean, wow. the, whole, the whole continent, the whole continent, right? And so if you know your Africa um, geography, there's 54 countries. So for us to finish fifth, That's, only being a yeah. year in is, pretty big deal oh, for sure. and had that been an olympic qualifying tournament um uh, we'd be qualified for um sorry we'd be an alternate uh no i think five teams go from africa so i think we would have actually barely snuck in which is amazing mm. yeah so um that's one of the things that i will continue to do is serve in that capacity i also am going to continue to help lou with his foundation and that mission and there's a lot of things that i do during the day over here uh, where I'm working with other nonprofit partners that we have. Um, I'm trying to get things sorted out so that we can continue to do more work in South Sudan. And mm -hmm. that's a really hard job description to like give a lot of detail on because it's so random and it's so like different. But basically because I've known Luol for so long, um, you know, he needs somebody that he can trust and somebody that um, understands the dynamics and what's going on. And um, me with a team, a, a big team of other people, I'm a very small part in that, very small mm -hmm. part, but I, I'm able to do my part to continue to help with that. So I kind of do a hodgepodge of things at this point, um, but it makes for interesting days and I'm very grateful for it. Wow. If you look at yourself 10 years from now, what do you think advice would be that the person 10 years from now would give you to yourself in 10 years? 10 years from now yeah. or 10 years like to myself 10 years ago. Yeah. So Jacob, Jacob, 10 years from now, what would he tell from you now? Holy smokes. Um, man, Jacob, 10 years from now, I hope he would tell me um, to do an even better job of locking in time with uh, my family, hmm. being intentional about that, being focused about that. It's really easy when your business is online even the work I do with the wall, the vast majority of it's online, remote. 
Um, it's really easy to get in this cycle of like needing to be on your phone, checking this email, responding to this person. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's always a choice, right? Like there's to some extent there is set rules, but there's, there's it's always a choice because you could choose to schedule your day in such a way that people know that you just, Hey, I'm not available during this time. Right. So I, I would hope that, that that's something I would tell myself. Um, and that I would hope that that's something that I've grown in even more so. I think I've done an okay job, but I haven't done a great job. Um, you know, I would also hopefully um, tell myself to continue to invest in things that really matter. Um, like Smart Strength is is cool for me because we're we're helping people solve specific problems, and it brings me a lot of joy. I love training those pro athletes. I loved it. It was so much fun. They're such good people. But at the end of the day, you're helping somebody who makes a lot of money just make more money. Mm. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's something different about when I when I was in South when I was in Rwanda for that tournament with South Sudan. And when we won, the crowd who was able to be there, who was actually South Sudanese, like they were crying, like tears mm. down their face, like crying. Hmm. Because for their country, they had never seen a national team win. They had never seen people from different tribes play together. They had never seen or had something really to be proud of in that way. Mm. And to play a small role in helping that happen is huge. And like some of the stuff that Luol is doing that people don't even know about in, in South Sudan, you know, schools, hospitals, surgeries for people, like a, a lot of this stuff sounds like very canned and like, oh, that's what every like you know, that's what every like NGO does or, or public charity. And it's like, the difference is that, that the wall isn't waiting for someone else to come along and do it. He's doing it. The, there's been times where a drought or famine has hit an area and they need food. The wall isn't calling the freaking UN and this and that. He goes and gets a shipping container, fills it with food, ships it to his family. They put it on a truck and they've literally dug it out of the mud to get it to help people. Hmm. Like, to being able to facilitate a person like Luol who has that much passion and that much empathy and humanity to be able to help facilitate what he's trying to do. And again, a small part in it, just to play that role. It's very gratifying. And it, it I'm grateful to be in that position. And so like, I would hope 10 years from now, I've looked back and seen myself grow in that area. Mm-hmm. Like I would love to I always want to be involved in training. Um, there's always going to be a heart. Like, I mean, clearly I, I continue to lift, you know, almost every day I go work out with crazy Tom and Cam and, you know, I still have some goals of myself. I want to hit lifting wise, but, um, and I still want to train, you know, high level athletes as it, as it makes sense. So, but the difference is be that the goal of my life, I think has shifted to where, um, I want to be more about, um, helping people than maybe helping, uh, athletes. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think if you're open to this part two, it's just, much needed because I have so many questions we got through. I don't know, not even the first handful that I have. <laughs> so yeah, you have some incredible stories, Jacob. I appreciate the heck out of you. Uh, so thank you for, for jumping on and joining us and sharing all this. I, I would love to do a part two. Um, I don't know if Tom told you this when you guys spoke, but I am not short on uh, stories. And I, and I told you when, we, when you first got on, I enjoy talking about this stuff. Um, because, and I think this is a good place probably to wrap it up for this one. When I was younger, um, I had my dad who passed away last year from Alzheimer's. It had nothing to do with COVID. It was just, Mm. it was a terrible time though. 
Yeah. Um, I had him as an inspiration and then I had books that I read. But like when I just was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life, I didn't have anybody I could call. I didn't have any resources. There was no YouTube videos, there was no podcast, there was none of that mm. stuff. So like for me, this is why I think what you're doing is so important. For for you to provide a resource for people who are willing to look, to not just learn about, you know, how to train someone. That's such a infinitely difficult question anyway. For you to provide resources for people who really want to get to know uh, what other people in the industry are doing, what are their struggles, what is it about, how did you get there? I think it's such an valuable thing because this is the new book. This is the new mm. knowledge, what you're doing. Mm. It's giving people the opportunity to grow from other people's experiences. And if you're not taking the time to set it up and ask the questions and get the mics and upload it, like that's a lot of work. And so like, I'm always grateful when someone comes to me and asks me to do this because I want some kid, you know, like me a long time ago to stumble upon this and have a resource and maybe a path or even a way to reach out and say, you know, hey, I, I, this helped me along my journey. Because if we're not helping other people, then what the heck are we doing, right? Yeah, like, what yeah. the heck are we doing if we're yeah. not helping other people? So thank you. I'm grateful for it. Um, and if you would like to have me back, I would love to come back to Absolutely. And one last question. If your dad was still around, he sounds like just a stand-up man. So much respect and, and honor to him and his life. What do you think he would tell you now, seeing that you've grown into the man that you are and doing what you're doing? Man, that's a, oof, that's a, um, I would, uh, at his funeral, um, I said that I hope that I grow up to be like him, mm. even though I was 34 <laughs> at mm. his funeral. Um, because in a lot of ways, I don't feel like I've grown up yet, um, which is strange for someone with three kids and, you know, whatever. But I just, you know, I don't feel like I'm I'm whatever that uh, place in life is that you need to get there. And so I would hope that um, him looking back would say, like, that you're on that path. Um, I hope that he would would say um, that I'm I'm honoring his memory. Um and how I'm raising my kids and my family and how I'm taking care of mom. Mm. Um, and I hope he would, you know, um, also say that like, just that he was just proud of um, the work that I'm doing and the way that I was doing it. Because that's the thing about my dad, you know, like I said, he worked 12 hour shifts and then he would still like drive the bus to pick people up for church. Like he would still, you know, if a neighbor uh, tree fell down or a cow got out, like he would go and help them. Like mm. there was there was not a short amount of stories when he passed of people saying things that my dad had done for them that my dad never spoke about, that I never knew about. He didn't ask for anything for it. He just did it. And the way that he went about his life, I would hope that he'd be proud of the way that I'm going about my life uh, and making those and making those things. And I'll say this. Um, there was a time when my dad first got diagnosed that I really thought hard about moving back to Texas because with Alzheimer's, there's no cure. You already know the ending. It's going to be terrible. There's no way around it. That's just mm -hmm. how it's going to be, especially when you're diagnosed younger, which my dad was diagnosed at 55. So that's pretty young. Um, and my dad told me, like, I didn't go in the military. I didn't work all those shift work. So you could go and do what you felt like you were supposed to do. I wanted you to go and do what you wanted to do. And you wanted to train athletes, so you need to stay in Chicago and do it. Mm. 
Mm. That that's what would make me happy. And that's when his mind was still there, obviously. And so like that was really influential for me because um, it, it, it's what gave me the ability to stay put. It's what gave me the ability to stay here and work because I was passionate about it. I still am, but I was so passionate about it, what I really wanted to do. And I just think um, even today, like looking down, like he would be so proud of the fact that I did that. I think had I gone home, he would have been so pissed <laughs> that I came to take care of him. Seriously, yeah. like so pissed. Like what the hell is wrong with you? I'm fine. I'm glad that you did what you, what, what I worked my butt off for you to be able to do. Yeah. I think that's the best way that I could honor him. So just continuing to do that. Jacob, I am just humbled and I'm inspired, I'm motivated and I just, I see a light in my own life, just seeing what you're doing and the change that you're making, like be the change that you want to see in this world. I mean, that's, that's just, I mean, you're doing it. You're doing a damn thing, Jacob. And, uh, I've been asking myself, like, how do I make an impact and putting in those hours, knowing and what you love and, and getting after it. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob. Well, like I said, thank you. Um, and I'm also humbled that you take the time out of your day to set up and do all this and to speak to me. So I'm grateful for that as well. Thank you. Appreciate it. Jacob Ross is just a humble warrior as well as with... Jacob is just a humble, gritty individual. Jacob is just one amazing person athlete coach human being who has grit who is humble who has faith and he's giving back i mean that guy is a true genuine change and i just want to say thank you if you tuned in hope this inspired you as much as it did for me and if you want to give back if you want to hook us up Scroll down on Apple, hit five stars, takes you five seconds, good deed of the day. I appreciate the heck out of you for doing that. If you're on another platform, hit subscribe, like, leave a review. This helps us reach more people. So if you think this is a great show, thank you for doing that. Hit those likes, that subscribe, that review. It's a good deed of the day and it does make a difference. So thank you for doing such. If you haven't done so, check out the calisthenics programming i do it i personally program it alongside my partner where you can see that you can find that on modernathlete.com you have video instructions it's easy to follow i do it all you'll be coached by me as well i mean hey it's a steal and it's incredible value for what you get as well i couldn't find it out there find it out there so we created it ourselves and we put it out there ourselves enjoy to get stronger to get more skilled and just I'm a beast. Until next time, much love.